Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode one in the book of John titled, In the Beginning Was the Word, where we discuss John chapter one, verses one through 14. This is, Lord willing, the beginning of 44 episodes in the book of John, where Pastor Andy Davis and I go through the book of John verse by verse. It is our goal to ask questions of the text and provide meaningful commentary and theological insights that would help you in your Christian journey. If you'd like to support the podcast, please donate at twojourneys.org. Whether you support or not, we are very eager to have you listen. Andy, before I read verses 1 through 14, I want to ask you about this passage, but since also today is the first podcast in the entire book of John, can you give us a brief overview of the entire book and then also give us a little foretaste of what we're going to see in the text today? Absolutely. Uh, The Apostle John made it really easy for us uh, when he gave a purpose statement at the end of John chapter 20 after the resurrection of Jesus, after the encounter with Doubting Thomas, um, all of that. He kind of sums it up. There's one more chapter beyond that has a very strong and important purpose, but he really puts his purpose statement for the whole gospel at the end of John 20. And he is talking about the miracles that he's done, culminating in the greatest miracle of all, his own resurrection. And he says Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that will be the purpose of our podcast, the purpose of every study uh, for ourselves, for you and me, for anybody that hears, that we would believe in Jesus to the salvation of our souls. And that's an ongoing work of faith. We need to continue to believe in him. Uh, we'll get that beautiful image in John 15 of Jesus as the, the vine and we the branches. So we need to continue to abide in him by his word. And so we're going to feed on this gospel uh, to the end that we will continue to see the infinite majesty of Jesus, the, the person of Christ, believing that he is the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of God, far more than the Jews were expecting. They didn't expect an incarnation, but that's who he is that we would believe in the deity of Christ, and that if we believe in that, that we will have life, we will live forever, we'll have eternal life. The gospel is going to give us a description of that life, what that life is like through the I am statements and other aspects. He's going to tell us how rich and full that abundant life will be. Uh, And the evidence itself will uh, unfold in terms of seven miraculous signs and seven extended teachings. What's so remarkable about uh, John's overview statement there in John 20, 30, and 31 is that the word, the written word, can mediate this to you. By reading his gospel, you can believe. So the word of God uh, has the power to give us life. We should humbly accept the word planted in us which can save us, Peter wrote. And so the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So it's not a surprise that John begins with this, I don't know, metaphor or the image of Jesus as the word. And we'll see in John 20 also how uh, John says in verse 9, they still did not understand from scripture that Christ had to rise from the dead. He really wants all of his readers to base their faith in Jesus, their vision of Jesus on the written word of God. Yeah, he does mention in John chapter 5, that the hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Well, we hear through the written word, through the right? Word. Amen. What can you tell us about John the author? What do we know about him? Well, first of all, we know that he doesn't mention himself at all in this gospel, which is quite amazing. Uh, he refers to a disciple whom Jesus loved, and he refers to him again and again. Uh, but John, the brother of James, one of the, the 
um, the the twins of thunder, or the sons of thunder, so to speak, uh, that Jesus uh, mentioned, sons of thunder. They're, they're very powerful. Uh, one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, that went with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, prominently mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not mentioned at all. So it, it's just by process of elimination, you have to figure that, that, that this is the John um, who, uh, you know, uh, who is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And what a beautiful way to speak of yourself. I, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And, you know, he doesn't focus on, I'm the one who loves Jesus. He did love Jesus tenderly and with, with amazing affection, but Jesus loved him more. And so we know that about John. Uh, he was therefore an eyewitness, as he says in First John, of his majesty. He's able to give us a firsthand account. He was right there. He laid his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He was the only one of the uh, male disciples who was at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die with his own eyes. All the rest were women. Um, and so he's going to be a creditable witness uh, to the uh, the facts of the gospel. We also know that in this gospel, he takes a very different approach, a different perspective than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. They come at it from the same perspective, which is what synoptic means. They look at it from about the same angle. Matthew, Mark, Luke takes about the same approach, though there are significant differences between them. John's radically different. It's like looking at it from the other side of the street back or something like that. So he, he skips a lot of things, omits a lot of things, and zeroes in and gives long teachings and lots of explanation. So so it's pretty powerful. We also see it's a gospel of belief. He's going to go after believers. And we're going to see the theme also, sadly, of unbelief, of uh, him coming to his own, the Jewish nation. And they did not accept him. And this is going to be true worldwide, not just among the Jews, but most Gentiles who ever hear of Jesus do not believe in him. And so we're going to see not only belief, but unbelief in this gospel. Well, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. And I'm reading from the ESV. In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in these first couple of verses, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Break down the three things that John tells us about the Word and why they're important. Yeah, this is vital. What an amazing way to begin the gospel here. There's no doubt that the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is hearkening back to the first book of the Bible, to the, the beginning of creation of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John is picking up that same phrase, in the beginning. And so he wants us to see Jesus' activity clearly in creation, in physical creation. 
there's a sense of a, a counting off of days that you can get and we can talk about that but the idea is we're looking at Jesus and connecting him with creation and we're going to find that uh, he was directly involved with God the Father in the creation of all things. We'll get to that. But to answer your question, um, he uses the word word. And so the idea of word, uh, it's very powerful, deep in theology. And the idea is of a communication that God does all things by his powerful word. He created the heavens and the earth by the word of his power, by the breath of his mouth were the heavens made. And Jesus is that word. And so he's going to say, without Jesus, the Father didn't create anything. So he is the word that goes out from the Father. He's the way the Father communicates himself to us. And so he's going to say, Jesus is going to say later, amazingly, to Philip, I think it is, uh, when he says, Lord, show us the Father. And he says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you all this time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And in uh, Christian Trinitarian theology, he's not claiming to be the Father. He's claiming to show the Father or reveal the Father. At the end of this little section here in the, in the uh, prologue, not, not anything we're going to cover today, but in a few verses later, he says, uh, no one has ever seen God at any time, but, but the only begotten God, the Word from the Father, has exegeted or explained him. So uh, when you see Jesus, you're seeing a light beam from the from the sun think of it think of it that way s-u-n the sun in the outer space and and the light beam travels through 93 million miles of space and gets to your eyeball and so you're seeing the sun with the light beam jesus is the radiance of god's glory uh, when you hear the father speak you're hearing jesus you know in the past god spoke to our forefathers at many times in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son so he is god's final word so i love the word word it's an active powerful thing the word of god makes things happen uh, so he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god so with and was um, lead you right into the doctrine of the trinity he was not um, the Father, so he's in partnership with God. He is in the relationship. So the Father and the Son have a relationship together. All human relationships are based on that inter-Trinitarian fellowship or relationship. So he was with God, and he was God. Now what that means is that, that God, for us as Christians, we understand the idea of a trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all of them are God in that sense, the supreme being. That's the word we have chosen in the English language to re refer to the su supreme being. Other languages have other words. Remember in, uh, in Japanese it was kami-sama, but there's just different, different words used in different languages. In English it's, uh, it's God. And so there is one God and there is only one God. The monotheism of the Jews, well established. There is only one creator of the universe, but this one creator of the universe exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so in the beginning was the Word. What that means is Jesus already existed when God was creating everything, all the universe. So Jesus is not a creature, um, unlike the Arians, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is not God's first creation. Jesus was there with God at the beginning, in the beginning. And he has always been God. He didn't like wasn't an honorary degree conferred on him at some point because of his superior achievements. He always has been God and always will be. So that's the first statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He repeats it in verse 2. He says, he was in the beginning with God, which he just said in verse 1. So why does he say it again? I think with Scripture, whenever you have repetition, you have emphasis. So he's underscoring it. He slightly rephrases it. 
um, but he's saying the same thing twice. So um, I think what he's saying is, again, what we just said, he is God, the uncreated creator of all things. Um, he was with God in the beginning. So uh, again, we have that fellowship uh, in the Trinity. So from the very beginning, he, Jesus, we'll find out plainly in verse 14, the word became flesh, and then grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So um, it's pretty plain that this prologue is speaking about Jesus. Jesus was with God in the beginning. He was God. Right. In verse 3, he says, all things were made through him, mm. and without him was not anything made that was made. So what does this tell us about Jesus' activity in creation? It's a deep thought, and you know, I had the chance of writing a commentary in the book of Isaiah, and the, I call it fierce monotheism, the, the intense, the, the powerful monotheism of Isaiah 40 through 49, those 10 chapters where again and again and again, the God of Israel, uh, the God of the Jews, is taking on with great jealousy, taking on their false gods, Molech and, and Baal and all these gods. He says, there is no God but me. I know of no, no other God. And at creation time, there was none with me. I, I, I alone created the heavens and the earth. There was no one with me. So you have this fierce monotheism. There is one God, the creator of all things. And here it says, yes, but he didn't create anything apart from Jesus. And we've already been told he was with God and was, was God. And so um, we're going to zero in now on the creature, creation, the heavens and the earth, the, the stuff that God made, both visible and invisible, as Colossians says, where the thrones are powers, rulers, authorities, everything visible, invisible, everything. Spiritual realms, physical realms, all creatures were made through Jesus. It's amazing when you think about it. There was nothing made that has been made. So there's no third category um, or, or second category, I guess, in this case. I guess it would be third category. you got God, creation, and that's it. <laughs> okay. So there's not God then the creation that God made through Jesus, and then the creation he made not through Jesus. There's nothing like that. And so uh, it's an incredible statement here. Now, I don't understand it fully. I don't know what through means, that God the Father made everything through Jesus the Son. Uh, you know, it's like he's a tool or a conduit of power or something, or the word in some way communicates. But the father didn't circumvent Jesus. He worked with his son to make all things. And he says it twice in verse 3, and without him nothing was made that has been made. You know, again, it's that emphasis. So let me be very clear. There is nothing in all the universe that di does not exist except through Jesus. And when you think about all of his enemies, his adversaries, who's so bold, and arrogant and defiant toward him, and they don't exist apart from him. It's really quite amazing. Yeah, this notion that Jesus created all things, or that the Father created all things through the Son, is very prevalent. You mentioned Colossians. Also Hebrews. Hebrews 1 mentions Jesus uh, creating the heavens and the earth. And Jesus says in John 5 that the, the Father, he does the same works that the Father's doing. Mm. So there. Yeah. I think also for evangelism, we need to keep this in mind, missions and evangelism. I think it's, and, and increasingly as our country becomes more and more pagan, less and less Christian, we need to, to go back to the way the Bible begins, the way the Gospel of John begins, the way the book of Hebrews begins, Colossians, go back to creation. Why is there something rather than nothing? And how does this universe exist? Where did it come from? 
and begin our apologetic and our defense of the gospel uh, with creation. It's a great way to start because people who haven't even read the Bible, they're looking at what John Calvin called the theater of God's glory around them every day. But what John 1 is saying is, yeah, but all of these things were created by God the Father through God the Son. And without God the Son, nothing was made that has mm -hmm. been made. Verse 4 says, in him, the word, Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So talk about these two ideas. One is, uh, what is this life that Jesus possesses? And how does it give light to men? Well, we could look at, f at the beginning of, of verse 4 as just in general, all living things exist through Jesus. And that would be an absolutely true statement. And I think that may even be exactly what John meant. Um, but we have to try to understand the second half of verse 4 as well. But, uh, you know, let's just keep it simple for the first half and just say every living thing on planet Earth, um, every, everything that's alive on planet Earth has its life in Jesus. So in him, uh, life continues to exist. He sustains or upholds all things. Hebrews 1 said that, you know, he sustains everything by the word of his power. And so Jesus keeps all the squirrels alive and he keeps all the earthworms alive and all the microbes continue to respire and to, and to, um, to exist uh, through Jesus. And uh, everything that's alive has its life um, you know, talk about redwood trees and all of that, and human beings. Every single human being in Jesus, effectively, this text is saying, in Jesus they live and move and have their being. So all life comes from him. And life is, it's almost undefinable. It's very, very difficult to define. It's usually defined by biologists in terms of certain biological functions. If something does the following things, and I've listed a few of them, like respiration and excretion and motility and reproduction and things like that, if it does those things, it's alive. If it doesn't do those things, it's not alive, like a mineral, something like that. It doesn't do those. It has an existence, but it's not alive. In Jesus, there is life. All life comes from Jesus. All right, but John means more than that. And in this gospel, he's going to talk about life being, I think, primarily a right relationship with God the Creator, you know, having a relationship, a living relationship with Him. And that is perfectly personified by Jesus. He is the life. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the life we should live. And in Him, there's life. And apart from Him, there's nothing but spiritual death. So to me, this means the right way to relate to God and then to live out that, that relationship in, in everyday existence. So that's what life means to me. It's just uh, being able to bear fruit, being able to, uh, to relate, etc. All of that is in Jesus. And his, his way of living that out, the only perfect life that's ever been, the only sinless life that's ever been, is the light of humans. All human beings see in Jesus the light of the pure life that human beings should live. And there's an eternality to this life, right? Oh, absolutely. This is the very life that John wants to give us that if we read his gospel and believe that Jesus is the Christ, we will have eternal life. So eternal life means a duration. That's the simplest way to look at it. It's a life that will never end. There's no death, um, but also a quality of life. It's a rich, full, John 10, 10, an abundant life, a rich life. So you want to look at what life really is. It's in Jesus. Yeah, he mentioned in John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Yeah. 
which is very interesting because he says even if he dies, but then he says he'll never die. It's such a beautiful statement. I also can't help but uh, think about what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, apart from Christ, we're all spiritually dead. We're dead in our transgressions and sins, even while we lived. So you've got biological life going on, but you have no real life. And so we're surrounded by living corpses, people that, that are, are existing. Uh, they wake up in the morning, they go to jobs that they hate or maybe even that they love. But there's no purpose to it. There's the book of Ecclesiastes. There's just no end to, you know, no purpose. They're, they're going to die. Everything they worked on is going to sink back into the dust. That's, that's not really life. So if you're not in a right relationship with God, you're not really alive. But in Jesus, there is that life. Yeah. And verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So now we have darkness introduced here. Uh, what, what do we know from John about the darkness versus the light? Well, again, going back to Genesis chapter 1, um, it says in Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. One thing about light is that it reveals, it makes all things visible, it makes things plain, as Paul says in Ephesians. And so light has to do with revelation of God's nature. And so it's a communication of what he's like, the, the glory of God. The word glory frequently is, is tied to light, visible light like when Jesus was born and the glory of the Lord shone around the angel who came to announce it and it was, it was like day, even though it was nighttime. So there's that sense of revelation, emanation of the nature of God. That's what light is, is like. And, and so um, God separated the light from the darkness and he called the light good. He didn't say that the darkness was good. Darkness is an absence of light. And so John's even going to pick up on this very strongly in his epistle where he says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In other words, his being is completely filled with who he is. Uh, Jesus said, when your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. So if we're in a right relationship with God, we'll be conformed to him and brilliantly shining. Like Jesus said, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So um, that life that we refer to in the last verse uh, is light and the light shining in the darkness. So the darkness has to refer, it's a metaphor for the rebellion and wickedness that entered the world through Satan and his demons and through human rebellion against God. It refers to wicked, sinful rebellion against Almighty God and all of the effects of that. And the light shines in the context of that rebellion and the darkness has not understood it or comprehended it or extinguished it. There's different ways of translating this word and you'll see those different translations, but it has not verbed it. It has not been able to handle it. It's, you know, and you think about it like a, a brilliantly lit room and a, and a completely dark room and an a effective barrier between the two and you throw open the door between them and the light floods into the darkness and the darkness runs away. And so light wins. It's a very powerful image here. So the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it, comprehended it, etc. Now let's talk about that. That goes to, again, the issue of unbelief. Uh, the people do not see because, as in John 9, they're blind, spiritually blind. They cannot see the light uh, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And so they're blinded. They don't see him. And so the light shines, but they don't see it. They're blind. Right. And verse 6, John the Baptist is introduced. Yes. Another John. A bit confusing, yes. <laughs> Got to struggle with this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So we get this word witness. What was John's overall role 
to prepare the way for Jesus. Yeah, he was sent uh, into the desert as a prophet, uh, very much in the spirit of Elijah. He was like an otherworldly figure. He did not care at all, in, in the slightest bit, for the things that people crave in this world, the flesh, fleshly desires of what you eat and what you drink and what you wear and what you be entertained with. He wasn't living that kind of a life. He was out in the desert like Elijah was when he was fleeing from wicked King Ahab during the, the drought and famine. John was not fleeing from anyone, at least not at that stage. He never fled, but um, he didn't have any enemies. Um, he was just out in the desert and was preaching. And he was predicted uh, in Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And he wore uh, camel's uh, hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He was just living an otherworldly kind of life. Uh, Hebrews 11 speaks of people who live in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, those of whom the world was not worthy. John was very much like that. Jesus said in Matthew 11, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he was least in the kingdom of heaven, was greater than he, he said. He said concerning John, what did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? No. Did you, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are king's palaces. He went out to see a mighty oak of righteousness who preached. What did he come to do? Well, he said he came to prepare the way for the Lord. And if you look at Isaiah, it says, Every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, from the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that's Isaiah 40. So he was not a civil engineer. He wasn't coming literally building roads in the desert. But what he did do is he came to level human hearts, level them. So the arrogant... He went out there like a blowtorch. You snakes, you brood of vipers, talking about the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. He leveled them. They didn't think they needed John or anything. But then those who were brokenhearted, weak, sinful, who came to confess their sins and he would baptize them, immerse them in water as a symbol of cleansing. And uh, he would give them a sense of the possibility of forgiveness, but not in his own name. And we're, we're going to see later in this chapter how he's very plain that he was not the Messiah, he was not the Christ. There's somebody coming after him who would atone for their sins, and he gives a clear testimony. And we'll see in John chapter 1 what he says. He says he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Son of God who came down. And so he came very clearly to prepare the way by his preaching and by his water baptism. And he came, I remember one preacher said, to proclaim the way, uh, to prepare the way, proclaim the way, and get out of the way. So um, second stage is when Jesus came to be baptized. John pointed his finger at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, as we just said. And he got some disciples trained and ready and then handed them off to Jesus, including John, I believe. And then uh, when the time came, he got off the stage. He didn't try to hog the spotlight. He said, He must increase and I must decrease. So a lot of things we can say and will say about John, but that's who John was. He came as a witness to bear witness to the light. Yeah, and it says his purpose is that all might believe through Jesus. So he is also preaching for belief in Christ. Yes, yeah. I mean, he says amazing things about him. He says, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. He said that he's going to clear his threshing floor and gathering the wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Speaking about hell. He said, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Very fiery, powerful, bold preaching. And then his testimony pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, his understanding of Jesus' mission to die on the cross for sins, amazing. 
His ability to identify Jesus before Jesus had said or done anything significant, amazing. But he said, I wouldn't have been able to do it except the Holy Spirit showed him to me. And then his assertion that Jesus was the Son of God. Again, without any evidence, just because of the testimony of the Holy Spirit in his heart, able to see this about Jesus. He would die on the cross, and he's the Son of God. Incredible. So he came so that people would believe in Jesus, and he had a role to play. Verse 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Obviously, Jesus is the true light. He's presented here as the true light. What does it mean that he gives light to everyone? Well, this would, this would not be universalism. Uh, there will be some people, many people, most people, actually, sadly, who will die in their sins. They will die spiritually blind, spiritually dead. So I think we have to understand that, that he gives light to everyone, meaning everyone who will receive that light, everyone who will in the end be saved. In other words, there's no other path of salvation. There's no other light. In our pluralistic society, which you know, preaches respect for other people's religions and all that, um, I think we should always respect other people. I think we should not respect other people's religions. Uh, if that religion is not the true light that comes into the world that gives light to everyone, if it's not Christianity, if it's not focused on the person and work of Christ, it's actually darkness. It's poison. It's damaging them. So I have no respect for a poison that someone's drinking that's going to kill them. I'm not respecting that poison. I'm going to beg them to stop drinking that poison. Um, but the fact is, there is only one light who came into the world. There are not many lights. There's not many ways to God. There's not many truths. All religions don't teach basically the same thing. That's just not true. Christianity teaches basically Jesus. <laughs> and any religion that doesn't is not teaching basically the same thing. So what he's saying here is he is the light that gives light to every human being that will be enlightened by the Holy Spirit. He's the only light there is. And it says he's coming into the world. Mm -hmm. So he's about to step down. Yeah to mankind. Yeah, that's awesome. It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So it seems like John's kind of giving us a preview of what we're going to find in his gospel about yeah. how he's very misunderstood by the world. Yeah. Well, he kind of steals his own thunder from a couple of verses later when it says the Word became flesh. Um, so the idea that he, the Creator, came to earth and was in the world um, that's the very issue we're going to be talking about throughout this gospel, that, that he became human. He entered the world and became human. He was in the world. And even though the world was made through him, it didn't know him. And so this is just the way God has willed it, that people are born in Adam, in sin. They're born not knowing their creator. They're born in darkness. They're born out of fellowship with God. Just for our listeners, please explain when you say born in Adam, what you mean by that. Right. Adam was the first human being. All human beings on the face of the earth derive their biological descent from him. The Bible teaches there's one, one from one man, God made every nation of human beings. And sin and death entered the it's world through right, Adam. Matthew, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 14 especially, teaches uh, what's known as the doctrine of original sin. So when Adam ate from the fruit, not when Eve ate now, but when Adam ate, all of his descendants died in him. They sinned and died. We committed sin in Adam. That's the way it says that because all sinned. So we sinned in Adam. We committed sin in Adam. Now, I don't know if committed is the right word. We were accounted, I think would be a better way to look at it. We were accounted sinners in Adam. And so every human baby that's born is born in sin and will die. 
born in sin and eventual death. That's what I mean by in Adam or the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. We're taught in both in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, he's the second head. And if we are in Christ, then all of the effects of Adam are eventually removed. We will live forever. We will not die. We will live in a perfect world, not tainted by sin. And so we'll be free. Jesus came to reverse all that happened in Adam. But what I'm saying here is that um, that he, Jesus, came into a world of human beings who he made, but they don't know him. They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. Yeah, he was veiled. Yeah. Yeah. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead. See, that's powerful. Yeah. Verse 11 gets more specific. It says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, is he talking about the Jewish people, or is he talking about to mankind in general who he had created? Well, the first part of the verse, there, there's two different Greek words um, and senses. So it's, I think my, my understanding is it really could literalistically be translated this way. He came to his own things and his own people did not receive him. So um, I'm not sure what the things are, but everything is his. And you could say, are we things? It's like, well, we're creatures. So you could look at it this way. He came to his own creation and his own people did not receive him. So... All of his people are part of his creation, but there's a special thing that he did with the Jews. And we know that history of how God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and um, made him some promises that through his offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And so he had a son, a miracle baby, Isaac, and then Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and from them came the Jewish nation. And we got that whole history, the Jews, um, and that's going to be very prominent in John's gospel. And so he came to his own stuff, his own creations. It is his stuff. Let me stop right there and say, I remember I had a conversation once with a, a very arrogant atheist. And this guy was very proud of himself, and he'd heard all the arguments. And he came over, he and his wife came over. His wife had recently become a Christian. And so um, we had them over for fellowship, but also for evangelism. And so I wanted to talk to this guy, and he was getting a, uh, a PhD here at Duke University, and very bright guy, triathlete, um, very successful kind of guy. Loved to debate. I think he was there, uh, among other things, to play chess with me theologically and kind of beat me at chess, if you know what I'm saying. We didn't literally play chess, I'm saying, in the debates. And we talked about foxhole um, conversions, and he said, you know, he was once lost for three days out in, a, out in a, some mountains in California, and he faced death, and he never once thought about becoming a Christian. So he's very proud of the fact that no foxhole would ever convert him and all that sort of stuff. But I will never forget how that evening ended. I thought about how it says in Romans chapter 1, um, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And so um, I said to this guy um, that I've noticed that you're very polite and that you've thanked my wife a few times for the meal that she cooked and for us, us for having you over. And he was very proud of that, like he was proud of everything in his life. He said, well, my mom raised me right. I know how to show good manners. I said, well, the way I look at it, we're actually in God's living room all the time, and we're eating his food and breathing his air and looking at his sun uh, in the sky, and we are drinking in his rain, and we are using his stuff. Don't you think we ought to thank him for it? And uh, he had no answer to that. Wow. And so Jesus came to his own things. Everything around us, including us, is Jesus's. It belongs to him because he made it. And then the second half says his own people did not receive him. Now we get to that, again, that issue of unbelief, the darkness. The Jewish people did not receive him. Now he's going to say in a moment, but as many as did receive him. So there are some that did. But the, the, the mass of Jews, the Jewish nation as a whole, officially 
and also for the most part rejected him and did not believe in him, went away from him and no longer followed him if they did follow him for a while. They did not believe him. So he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And the receive means welcome him in. I think it really in John's language would be believe in him. They did not believe in him. Let's talk about that glorious truth in verse 12. What does John tell us? Mm -hmm. But as many as did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So um, we'll get to the rest of it in a moment. But there are some people who did receive him. All of his true apostles, the 11 that really did believe in him, uh, received him. They believed in him. They received, they welcomed him into their heart, into their lives. So that's what receive means. To receive Christ in this sense is to be open. Jesus uses, or John uses a lot of metaphors to come to Christ. He says, you will not come to me that you have life. You know, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So the coming language. Believe in his name. Believe, see him. There's a lot of different verbs, simple verbs. There's simple ideas. But here the idea is receive. And I, I would think hospitality might be a sense that you're welcoming a guest into your home and glad to have them. You, you provide water for them in back in those days to wash their feet and, and a towel to dry and, and you provide some hors d'oeuvres or something to drink and, and you're just going to host them because you love, you're loving them. You're caring for them as a neighbor, right? So the image here would be that we're receiving Jesus, but we're receiving him as a king and we're receiving him as who he really is. So he says uh, he came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now that word right means there's, there's a definite privilege here um, and a right of access. And this is the, the most stunning blessing of the gospel. It's the greatest, most staggering blessing there is. J.I. Packer said it's the greatest, most surprising aspect of the gospel blessings is adoption. That we actually can be and are in Christ adopted as his sons and daughters, we who are at one point rebels. So if we receive Jesus, God gives us the right to become his children. And then he describes it in verse 13. Go ahead and read the ESV description. That's incredible. Um, he says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's three negations, not born this way or this way or this way but positively this way. So the three negations really all amount to the same thing. They're not born in the normal way. It's not a matter of human will. We don't decide to make ourselves be born or like a, um, a couple will decide to start having children, you know, make a decision there um, or any biological function. It's not biological at all, actually. Um, it's, not, it's not the will of the flesh. It's not... Uh, human will. Um, it's not like a fleshly drive. Um, it's not of blood, uh, I think is one translation. It's not coming genealogically. Um, doesn't really matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter at all. What matters is if you're a human being um, who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you have already been born of God. God has given birth to you. And John's gonna, Jesus is going to make this very plain in John 3 with Nicodemus, a very famous being born again or born from above statement. But that's what it means. To be a child of God means to be born by the power of God. This is an incredible concept that it's not by genealogy. It's not by family, lineage. But this gets introduced actually all the way back in Genesis, right? Mm -hmm. with, with the Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau, yeah. um, sons of promise versus sons of the flesh. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? 
Well, yeah, I think um, Paul makes it clear uh, in Galatians and also in Romans that um, just because you're physically descended from Abraham doesn't mean that you really are a child of God. Uh, no, it's a supernatural thing. Galatians 4 makes it plain that there are mirac the miracle children and the children born in the natural way. So the uh, Ishmael, the, the son of Hagar, the slave woman, is born in the ordinary way, okay? So that would be biologically alive. And there's plenty of those people right now, billions of them. But then there are children of God, and they, obviously, they are born biologically, or we wouldn't be talking about them, they wouldn't be alive. Um, human, all right? But they have to be born again. They have to be born by the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So that's what born of God means. Now, we don't know all this yet, but it'll come later in John's Gospel. Um, and so what he's saying is that there are those that are born in the ordinary way, but if they're not born again, then they will perish. And it's going to be very clear from the most famous verse in this whole uh, Gospel, maybe in the whole Bible, you know, um, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So if you're not born of God, if you're not born from above or born by the Spirit, you will perish, which means be condemned to hell. And so that's what this is saying. You can, and you can't decide to do this. This is not something, it's not a matter of the flesh. It's not a matter of the will where you can say, I will decide today to become a Christian. I actually do believe every Christian decides to become a Christian, but it's only because God's already decided to work something in their hearts. And so it's not the will of the flesh. It says very plainly in Romans 9, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or man's effort, but on God who has mercy. Here in this verse, he's saying on God who makes you born again as a child of God. Yeah, because he basically contrasts the will of man versus the will of God, not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but of God. So yeah. It's really by the will of God. Yeah, and he's going to make it uh, clear. I think the sovereignty of God in human salvation is a major centerpiece in John's gospel. It's not a minor theme. He's, he's going to say again and again, the reason you do not believe is you're not my children. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws uh, him. The, the, the reason that they did not believe, even despite amazing miracles, is that uh, Satan had blinded their minds and that God had permitted Satan to blind them and harden their hearts and all that. So it's just very, very uh, plain that unbelief, unbelief, um, blindness, darkness, all of these metaphors, we cannot overcome it by an act of our will. It's something God has to do to us. Right. Verse 14 will be the last verse we discuss today. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Mm -hmm. We could have a whole podcast on that one really verse. Good. But let's walk through those words and just talk about what they mean. First, the, the uh, staggering notion, the Word became flesh. So that's the incarnation. That's literally what incarnation means in the Latin, that kind of thing. It's uh, the enfleshment of the Word. The Word, it's clear now who we're talking about. And he says it even more plainly in verse 16, we're talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Word who became human flesh. And so by flesh, we, I think we mean, we, we need to understand it as um, physically alive, having muscles. Biology. Biology, right. yeah, having muscles, having, generally flesh in this sense would be like the flesh of a beast that you could eat, like, like beef, you know, it's muscles and stuff like that you'd cook. Um, and so in this sense, it's like human beings have muscles like animals do. And so there's that sense of, of a fleshly existence, not in the sense of wickedness or sin, 
but in the sense of physicality. He became a physical human being. And Romans 8 says, in the likeness of the flesh to be a, a sin offering. And so he looked like any other sinner, but he wasn't a sinner. So he had all of the outward trappings of the rest of the sons of Adam, but in some amazing and powerful way, he was pure and freed from original sin. But he was human. You could shake his hand. You could, you could touch his hair. You could pat him on the back. You could watch him really, truly eat food, chew and swallow and wash it down with liquid. Uh, you could see him sleep. He would sleep in the boat when he was tired. Uh, he, he could die. He could bleed and die. Um, so. And he's a real human. He's not like Superman who looks like human, but he's from another place. But he's like a real human being. Yes, the, the early church wrangled and wrangled on articulation of this, but this is essential to Christianity. On the incarnation of the Word, and that was written by Athanasius. So this is vital, that, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human, 100%. And normal human except for the sin. All right, so he doesn't have any superpowers as a human. He has superpowers as the Son of God, and that's going to be clear evidence of his deity. But as a human being, his, his metabolical function, all that was uh, normal. Uh, so he was absolutely, completely, fully normal human, apart from sin, and also fully God. That's the doctrine of the Incarnation. The Word became flesh. And it says he dwelt among us. Yeah, tabernacled or pitched his tent among us is the uh, Greek expression here. And it's interesting, too, because you have the tabernacle uh, that was commanded to be uh, built, and the instructions are in Exodus 25 through 40, and then uh, the glory of, of the Lord, the, the some people call the Shekinah glory. I, I have a hard time finding that in the Hebrew, but the word Mishkan means the dwelling place. So the Shekhan uh, kind of sounding in Hebrew means dwelling. So the dwelling glory, that's what I think Shekinah glory means, the dwelling glory. So it would be a glory cloud that would come and fill this tent and tell everyone, the Israelites that were watching, God is there. God's dwelling there. It was the very uh, glory cloud that also entered Solomon's temple when they built that and then departed from the temple in, in uh, Ezekiel 11 when the glory had departed from Israel through unbelief and idolatry. So now we've got this tent image. Jesus came and, like we're still dwelling in tents, the Jews weren't at that point, they were living in houses, but um, that he came and pitched his tent among them. His glory cloud came and filled that tent of, of ordinary humanity. And uh, we have seen that glory, um, you know, John says. So the word became flesh and, and pitched his tent among us. He, you know, and this is again the doctrine of Emmanuel. Uh, which is God with us. He's sharing human experience. He knows, at he Hebrews says, he's a merciful and faithful high priest who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He is, because he's, he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So he's fully human, and he pitched his tent right in our midst to, to bring God right to us. Hmm. You mentioned the glory leaving in Ezekiel, and I don't know the reference, but I, I remember reading uh, in, in some of the prophets where the glory returns and, uh, and I, this must be it, right? Uh, the glory returning to Israel. It's back. It's back forever. You know, Jesus uh, has returned. Now, uh, of course, we have the, the issue of, of Israel's hardness of heart and blindness that I believe will be removed at the end of the age. Um, but, yeah, so uh, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. And, and so John said you could see it. You could see the glory of God. 
Yeah, what do you mean by you can see the glory? Because we know from Isaiah, he says he had no beauty or majesty, you know, that we could look upon. But then John, through that, saw glory. So what do you think John means? Well, there's a physical seeing and then there's a spiritual seeing. Okay, so physically, Jesus once became very bright, the Mount of Transfiguration. And so there was a brightness to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration that was not normally part of who he was. There also was a brightness around the resurrected Christ when he confronted Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, brighter than the sun, Paul says in Acts 26, a brilliant light shining around Jesus. And so we can't say it isn't brightness or bright light. Frequently the word glory is associated with bright light, like the angel of the Lord came and the glory of the Lord shone around. And so Jesus could have had a supernatural brightness to him, and that would be a form of emanation or communication of the glory of God. But there's a second kind of glory, and the greatest display of glory ever in Jesus' life was on the cross. And there you don't have any beauty or majesty at all. Just like you said in Isaiah 53, it actually was a very dark day, a supernaturally dark, because there was a, a darkness that came over that part of the world from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And so for three hours, it was just eerily dark. Um, and yet a radiant display of the attributes of God. And that's what I think glory means. You can see God's mercy, God's power, his compassion. If you think about the cross, you can see every one of the attributes. They're all there. You can see his wise plan come to fulfill, fulfillment. You can see his power in that he removes the sin of the land of the earth, really, in a single day. Just in one afternoon, he atones for everything. Amazing power. Uh, the wrath of God in, in the pouring out of, of the cup of wrath on Jesus. Uh, and the justice of God, and all of the love of God. God demonstrates his love for us. So all of these things, if you knew what to look for, if you had eyes of faith, if you could see, like faith is the eyesight of the soul by which you see invisible spiritual realities. When you look at Jesus dying on the cross, you see glory. And so Jesus prayed for that in John 17. Father, the time has come, the hour has come. Glorify your son. And he's meeting the cross, mm. that your son may glorify you. I want to put you on display. Put me on display, Father. Enable me to finish the work, go right to the end. John stood there and watched it. And as an old man now, I, I would imagine, looking back at the cross more than anything else, but in the healings, in the teachings, walking on water, interactions with brokenhearted women who are grieving over their sin, the Samaritan woman at the well, all of this, they just saw his glory. Day after day after day, they saw the greatness of the person of God in the way Jesus dealt with people. Wow. To finish up verse 14, he says, you know, we saw his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the first time the word son is mentioned right. in the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a, uh, it's a mysterious concept. We'll never fully be able to understand the incarnation. The Greek word is monogenes. So he is, he is a, a solitary figure here in heaven. There's no one exactly like him. He is our brother, brother Lord, so to speak. And we are, to some degree, in his image, et cetera. We are in his image, et cetera. But he is utterly unique. So his sonship is different than yours and mine. We're adopted sons and daughters. Jesus is the only begotten. I mean, that's the way, you know, KJV translates, only begotten. What does begotten, not made mean? I don't really know. <laughs> I spend the rest of my life trying to figure it out. He's eternally begotten, so he's forever in that father-son relationship with the father. Uh, it's just... 
it's a mystery um, what it means. You know, you are my son today. I've begotten you. It says in the in the uh, words of the psalm, the prediction referring to the resurrection. So it's deep mystery. But I think what it means is Jesus is utterly unique, and his sonship is different than my sonship or yours. Ours is more by connection with him. His is because of his role in the Trinity. So it's amazing. Fourteen verses in the Gospel of John, and we've already become a stumbling block to the Jehovah's Witnesses, <laughs> and now to the Muslims, because they yeah. say that God has no son. But John clearly portrays Jesus yeah. as the Son of God. Yeah. When it comes to Muslim evangelism uh, missions and all that, we should not shrink back from it. Because let's be honest, none of us understands it. We can't say, "Well, it's going to be hard for them to understand." Of course, it's hard to, for them to understand. It's hard for all of us to understand. And they're going to misunderstand, think that that Joseph had sex with Mary, and they, you know all that. Look, they said that during Jesus' lifetime. So we know we're like we're heading the right direction when the very same slanders are being opened up against Jesus and we have to deal with them. But no, he was not born of, of sexual immorality. He had to deal with that. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? We're not born of fornication like you were, this kind of thing. They slander. All this him. is said in John chapter 8. Yeah. yeah, and he has to address it. So for us, we don't want to shrink back from sonship when it comes to um, Muslim missions. We need to clearly portray that Jesus is... Uh, truly the Son of God, no matter how much that might be fraught with misunderstandings. That is the relationship the Father has chosen to give us concerning his relationship with his Son. With the church, there's a, a marital image sometimes, but also a father, son, or daughter image. But with Jesus, always Father, Son. He's my Son. And so, uh, and also this phrase is so powerful. It says, full of grace and truth. So when you, when you see the only begotten uh, from the Father, full of grace and truth, um, there's, there's no more grace that could be given us than Jesus. It's everything we need. Grace is, is the, the power of God for our salvation. It is, I've defined it as a settled determination in the, in the heart or mind of God to do us infinite good who deserve to be infinitely condemned. That's a full package def definition of grace. But that grace comes to us only through Jesus. So all of God's determination to do us good, big good and little good, little acts of grace, big lavish gifts of grace like our salvation itself, all of that comes blood-bought through Jesus. But Jesus had that grace in himself. He's full of grace and full of truth. He is the truth and he's full of truth. And so when you, when you hear him speak, he speaks the truth. He is the definition of truth. So all of these words are deep and rich and full, and we could spend the rest of our lives studying them and should. Amen. As we close, I want to ask you one final question. How do these truths that we've talked about in verses 1 through 14, how do they affect your life on a day-to-day -day basis, and how would you recommend other Christians internalize these and use these to build their faith? Well, it hit me some time ago that, um, you know, it came, I think came from meditating on a, on a wonderful uh, psalm which says, Come magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And I thought, what does magnify mean? You know, it means literally in the Latin, make greater. But how can you make an infinite God greater? You know, like a magnifying glass. You get a tiny little bug and you're looking at it and like a ladybug and it gets bigger and bigger. It's like, well, I think a better image would be a telescope looking at Saturn. Okay, um, it appears very small to you because you're so far away. All right, but when you look at at it through a powerful telescope, you can see Saturn's rings suddenly. You can see maybe even some moons. 
and it's amazing, like the Hubble Space Telescope, if it were turned to Saturn, the, the, the view would be incredible. Now, you haven't done anything to Saturn. It's every bit as big as it ever was, but now it appears bigger to you. So when we say, come magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together, what it means is God is too small to you. You have too small a view of God. Let's just take that over and apply it to Jesus into these 14 verses we've studied here. Jesus is too small to you. I'm not meaning to be insulting, Joel, to you or to me. We underestimate Jesus. All of us do. And right now, what we have is the written word. And heaven will have better. We'll see him face to face. But right now, we have words like these. And see, these are some of the greatest words in the Bible for expanding in our hearts a sense of the majesty, the magnitude of Jesus, the infinite scope and dimension of his person. I don't think there actually is a passage that even comes close to it. Colossians 1 is amazing. Hebrews uh, gives us some amazing insights. But this is really staggering, the things we've walked through rather quickly here today. And so what I would say is just go back over whether this podcast or the, ver the verses themselves and say, Oh God, give me through the Holy Spirit, that's his unique privilege to magnify Jesus in us, give me a greater sense of the majesty of the person of Jesus. Because that's the essence of faith, to have a clear and clearer view of who he is. Amen. Well, that was episode one in the book of John. Please join us next time for episode two, where we talk about Jesus, the Lamb of God, from John chapter one, verses 15 through 34. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.